Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck sitting here in my, what I euphemistically call a podcasting studio, but it's actually the uh, room I do podcasts in. It's not really a studio. It's my daughter's old bedroom. That is neither here nor there. Uh, the following lecture is from psychology 3926 slash 4926. Special topics in cognitive psychology, animal cognition. Hope you enjoy it. This is a weird topic, and I mean that in a good way. It's kind of fun and different. So, okay, first example. So black rats, which they were introduced into uh, Israel. Well, they were introduced, sorry, these pine trees, Jerusalem pines, were introduced into, well, Jerusalem. Makes some sense. In the last, oh, since the founding of Israel, so let's say the last 70 years. Okay? So these rats were brought to Israel, or sorry, not the rats, the pines were brought to Israel. Black rats like them. There are not squirrels in Israel. But there's something, as there always is, something that fills the squirrel niche, and it's these black rats. We build the squirrel niche. Always going to be a problem. It's always, yeah, exactly. And that's what's going to be in this case. Just like if you look in Australia, there are, for example, there aren't horses, but there are kangaroos filling the same niche. Okay? No, it's true. Because they really are. They're filling the same niche. Okay? The same. They, they, they're solving the same set of problems. So in this case, we got black rats. Um, <coughs> so these Jerusalem pine forests in Israel. These rats ended up sort of showing up, coming off of boats. So the pine gets introduced. They're growing more, not introduced, I shouldn't have said that. They're, they're getting more, um, they're getting more planted. But they weren't really just the species. They obviously, indigenously. These black rats come off ships that are bringing people and goods to Israel. Okay? They end up filling the squirrel niche. And they do this neat thing. And you can see these pine poles. They strip them. They eat pine seeds. Now, the thing is, at first they weren't doing this, and then every black rat was doing this. So the question was, is this a something they learn social, observational learning of some sort? So this, basically, the sole source of nourishment for these rats is these pine seeds. So they have to learn how to do this. Um, if you take adult black rats that are unfamiliar with the technique, the, the stripping, okay, um, we'll call them naive, they're unable to, 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 to figure this out. And if you have other ones that we'll call, like I said, the strippers, and you house experienced rats with the strippers. You mean naive? Sorry, naive rats with the strippers. Um, they learn how to do it. Okay? You guys are all, how old are you? Like nine? Yeah, then there's rat lap, lap dances. You want to, you want to, we can go that way if you want. You want to start. Have there been stranger experiments? Probably. So, black rat pups raised by stripper mothers. I love the, the, this, this, uh, this is from the abstract of a paper. I did learn to pine, pine cone opening behavior in addition to the presence of a stripper model. <laughs> However, the clues. Uh, sorry, the, the pine seeds themselves, as well as partially open cones, may also play a role. So in other words, it's maybe not them living with strippers, which is a reality show, rat strippers. It's on TLC. Uh, it's probably also got something to do with them seeing these pine cones like this. And realizing that they are food? Well, yeah. There's food there to get at them. Because that's how you get the at the okay? Here's another example. White crowned sparrows in California. I think I've told you this before that there are different white crowned sparrows, they're all over the place, all over California, American stuff. They have different accents in different parts of California. Their songs are different. So there are Berkeley white crowned sparrows. And there are 
Stanford white crab sparrows. See, people study things at different universities. They're studying the same species, but this, the birds sound different. <clears throat> so within even a couple of kilometers away, as long as you have some kind of ridge or a mountain or a bunch of big buildings in the way, they don't learn. They, they, learn, they all sing the same song. It's like Australians talking to New Zealanders, talking to South Africans, talking to Canadians, talking to Scottish people. They're all speaking English or white crown sparrow, but they have different accents. And if you take a, a young white crown sparrow from La Jolla, La Jolla, and have him brought up by parents from San Jose, let's speak San Jose sparrow. Chips are cool because they're like us. Many of them smoke. A lot of them wear clothes. <laughs> it's the old movie chips. But the neat thing about chips is there's some things they do, like for example, chimps, this chimp here is taking a stick and putting it in a termite mound and then taking it out and it eats the termites off the stick because termites are delicious. And they don't do this spontaneously, it seems. It seems like certain or it seems like certain groups of chimps do this and other groups don't do it. But when you bring one that does it after they've thrown shit at each other for a while, to the ones that don't do it, they'll they'll teach they'll it looks like they're teaching it. I, I keep not wanting to say they're teaching it, because are they? So it's, it's sort of like a tribal technology. Yeah, yeah, it's technology for sure. And these cooling nuts, these chips are using a piece of stone and another stone as an anvil and they're smashing them open. And they don't all do that. So it's different in different subpopulations that are no different, they're all chimps. This is like chimp technology, chimp culture. How would you pass that on? Well, it's, it's not obviously built into being a chimp. And by the way, others, they'll all eat these nuts. And they all like termites, but they don't always forage this way with these tools, sort of basically tools. So they have a cultural method. Maybe. We could call it that, perhaps. Then the final slide, we'll try to see if we can figure out if there's such a thing as non-human culture. It's kind of a big issue. A big weird issue. Okay, so those are just some examples that really look like culture, really look like, we must have learned this through observation, because there's no other way they can't be told it, because they don't talk. Right? I can pass my culture on to my children by explaining things to them, as well as by observation. They can't explain it. You can't, as a chip, go, they can't do it. When they go, hey, 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 and that doesn't mean anything. That's, that was my chip impression. It's not very good. Okay. It looks like they're learning from each other. And it's exceedingly tempting to say they are. What are they learning? That's the question you're always going to keep your head in. What are the contents of learning? So what are they learning? What's the mechanism? I can tell you how Pavlovian conditioning works. I can draw you a freaking mathematical model, a Scorla Wagner model. Yay! I can talk about the vector sub model of pigeon landmark use, and I can explain it to you. Yay! I don't know. I, what's the mechanism? It's hard to figure out. So that's a question we can ask. Are social animals better at learning these kind of things than non-social animals? We would expect so. But are they? Well, it's a question we can ask. And it's an empirical question. Do we, can we call this culture? I don't know. We'll talk about as we go through today, and like I said, probably next time too, because there's no way we through all this stuff. I mean, if we can refer to the different families of chimps as a tribe, we could refer to them. Yeah, we, well, we could call them that, but we don't have to. We can call them anything. We can call them a bunch of Steves. Because if you call something a tribe, doesn't make it so. Right? I mean, that's just a nominal fallacy. Giving something a name doesn't explain it. Right? 
So, I mean, my question is, and we'll come back to this at the end. I talked to um, Deborah Woodman in, in sociology because they're interested in culture. And I said, what's culture? I sent her an email and I said, I want to know what culture is for a class. And she gave me a definition and we'll go to that at the end. Like I said, probably next time or even maybe not next Monday because next Monday is your test. This may wait until next Wednesday. But I did want to start with this today. This is fascinating stuff. Um, how the hell can we do experiments on this stuff? This is not easy. Everything else so far, you can say, cool behavior in the wild. OK, take him into a lab. This is going to be harder. I will show you some experiments, and I think they're kind of illuminating. And you're going to say, boy, people are clever. Not just the animals are clever, the experimenters are clever. So say to Chris and Alina today, when I go to this conference every year, and my office ask me questions, when I go to this conference every year, CO3, Constant Comparative Cognition, about every third talk, I go, wow. And it's, it's sometimes it's about the animals, but usually it's, God, you're a clever scientist. You know, I wish I would have thought of that. So some neat experiments we're talking about. So what's social learning? And Keegan emailed me, was it last night? I saw the email this morning. First thing I saw when I woke up, which is weird. I pick up my phone, there's an email asking me the difference between social learning and observational learning. Social learning is learning resulting from the behavior of other animals. That, I guess, and I guess observational is when you do it by looking at them. <laughs> I can't, I'm not entirely sure I know the difference. But social learning would be learning resulting from the behavior of other animals. So could there be a, an interaction aspect of social learning? How do you mean? Like, uh, rather than one being a passive observer or the other uh, in observant, uh, observational learning, in social learning they are an active participant in the task. Do they have to be an active participant? What do you mean by active participant, right? Because I mean, like if I just think about this, are you an active participant? Well, I, and I don't want you to go say anything. If I just stand here and yell mathematical multiplication facts at you, you know, the way I was taught how to multiply it, and that I actually know how to do it, the rest of people pull out a calculator to add three and six. Right. So I don't think I would learn. No, you probably would, actually. It takes, it takes longer, but you actually, it, doesn't, it just sticks. Doesn't matter. Point is, in that case, are you an active participant? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. That's one of those. I, I see what you're saying. I just, it's a tough question to answer. But that's one way I think to look at it. I think you're probably right. But then again, I wonder what active participant means. I mean, saying it's not passive. Well, that's just begging the question, right? So. Oh. So, this has to be learning, not just a change in behavior. Okay, so learning means some, something at time one affects behavior time two, but if we talk about social, so the, uh, the behavior of another animal causes a change in your behavior. But if I, I don't know, let's think of a silly example. If I, broke your leg, and then you can't walk, that's not the result of learning, that's the result of me being a bully, right? You may have learned to avoid me, <laughs> that's about it, but your inability to walk isn't my fault, or isn't the learning's fault, it's completely my fault, no, it's your fault. So, there has to be learning in here, it's not just a change in behavior per se, it's a change in behavior that is learning. Um, so an aggressive animal making you aggressive isn't learning. So, you know, me coming up to you and yelling at you, and you yelling back at me, that's not learning. That's the two of us having a ridiculous testosterone fuel. Because this has got to be a guy, a woman would come idiot. Um, Social response. Yeah, exactly. That's different. And the behavior has to be novel. So it has to be something new that the animal has learned, right? Makes sense so far? It's the same we talk about any kind of learning, right? There are other things that aren't learning that time one affect, something in time one affects behavior time two, we don't call it learning. Okay, here's some examples. Um, ben, ben Galef, Jeff Galef, and Steve Whitmore, like three. When I took a course in learning in 1984, 
five at Western as an undergrad, he was the TA. Which just occurred to me like when I was making up these slides. Uh, it's funny because I've read that paper before. I didn't put it together. This is kind of a cool experiment. And Jeff Galef just retired. He was, he was a Mac. Um, okay. Rats are housed together. That's already novel for 1983. Usually you didn't do that. Then they're separated. A, let's, a rat is randomly chosen as a demonstrator rat and a uh, learner rat. The demonstrator rat is either given chocolate or cinnamon flavored food. They've not eaten chocolate or cinnamon before, either the demonstrator or the learner. Okay? They're put back together and they're given a choice. The learner is given a choice of what kind of food to have. Okay? And as you can see here, they prefer the cocoa powder over the cinnamon. And this is ones that were given cocoa powder as the demonstrator. And that's over time, two different times, so that's 0, 12 hours, 48, 60 hours. How are they learning this? What do you think? What's the mechanism? Just guess, I don't want you to speculate. So did the, uh, did the learners see the demonstrator? No. Okay. no. They, they're put back together later. That's a good guess, but no. Maybe they smell um, what they ate? Yep, that's exactly what they do. They smell each other's breath. The social behavior that rats have is they smell each other's breath. If you have rats, anybody here have pet rats? Or had pet rats any time in their lives? Really? I thought a lot of people had pet rats. Just my daughter? Okay. So... If you see, they have two rats together, one of the a social behavior they do when they run into each other is they, they sort of sniff each other's breath. It's something they do. So they're actually smelling the breath. And it's like, oh. And the, the notion is, that's a smell I don't know. He's also not sick. It's probably food. Well, we can test that. Galef and Aline, 95, so 12 years later, you take rats and you give them flavors. Either, and this is great by the way, either horseradish or cayenne pepper. Very different. Yes, but, all, but discernible, uh, obviously, like they're very obviously to notice. And then you make them sick with either, either horseradish or cayenne pepper. And then you see what happens when they get a choice between food with horseradish on it or cayenne pepper. And they avoid the one that makes the other rats sick. Rats can't vomit. You know that, right? So the thing is, because they can't throw up stuff that makes them sick, they eat very small amounts of things when they're normal. So it's social tasting. So what they do is, yeah, they, you, you, then they smell the other's breath. And see that he's, and he looks, you know, Eddie the rat looks a little under the weather. I think I'll probably avoid eating horseradish kind of. The cool thing that these guys did is they had <clears throat> colonies of four rats. So one rat would go eat the novel food, the other three rats would avoid it. Then something else happens. Gradually keep replacing a rat, remove a rat, put a new rat in. They could go four, quote, generations of rats, complete turnover, and they maintain the preference. That's neat. So now they're not sick anymore. It's just like, look, our people, and there's not people then, but rats sounds weird, don't eat that. We eat horseradish, not cayenne pepper, like some uncivilized rats. So they form tradition? You can call it that. They went four, four generations. I don't know if they went any further. I've heard that paper in a Pope's age. Two, two Pope's ages, actually, literally. Uh, three. Huh. 
John Paul II was the Pope then. Anyway, okay. Here's another cool thing. Uh, Louis the Fave and Lucalin Giraldo. We follow each other on Twitter. He's a Habs fan. So is, so is Louis. Okay, this is neat work. I love this stuff. So they have these little discs of paper. Okay? Like, so they have a, like a well in the floor, and then it's got paper over top, and it's got grain in it. So the, the, the bird has to peck through this grain, and then the grain comes out that they can get at. But the neat thing is that because they peck through this, and they peck through pretty forcefully to break the paper, the grain flies everywhere. So some of the pigeons learn to peck uh, through. Others, that's they're called producers. The other ones are scroungers. They just wait until another guy pecks, and then they eat the ones that's the go everywhere. Were the pigeons taught to peck through, or no? They just watched. They were taught necessarily. No, no, the ones who were. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, exactly. The original ones were taught to peck through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could have been something where they had to. Oh yeah, yeah. They had to. Well, no, yeah. You could do it that way. But no, it was. Uh, they were taught how to do this. So some just spills. And if they were able to scrounge, they never learned to produce. And pigeons on welfare never get a job. <laughs> See, someone can make this political. I'm not. I'm making a joke, but so we're making it political. And then we probably criticize them for comparing humans to pigeons. And right, justifiably so, by the way. Um, so, well, one of the things that was done then is let's make it explicit. So, because the idea here was just to do social learning, and then it's like, wait, they've learned something. They've learned I can live off this other guy's hard work. <laughs> Socialists. So, see again, I was joking. People do that though about these things. They took a test tube, put it upside down, put a little stopper in it, and just filled it full of grain. So now you have to spread, you have to, like, the, the pigeons, by the way, can learn this. They just learn to, they grab on the, the thing with their beak and they pull it out. It's not magical, it's pretty simple. And if some of the birds in this case, and some of the birds did learn to open up the thing and eat the food, but some of them literally never learned. They learned to stand by tubes and wait for other pigeons to open them. That's what they learned. They learned that if they stand there, they get food, right? And there's two. It's a perfectly good strategy. Being a scrounger is a great strategy if there's enough producers around, right? Being a scrounger is only a good strategy though if there are producers. If there's no producers, being a scrounger is you're going to die, right? So the producer-scrounger relationship is interesting because the producer is always going to eat. The scrounger depends on the producer. So the maximum number of, of scroungers in a population, there's got to be, it's got to sort of reach some equilibrium at some point, right? Where, because if there's too many scroungers, then there's no more pigeons, right? Yeah, yeah. So could a scrounger learn to be a producer if it was by itself? Or is it too late? i got to think back. It's been so long since I read this stuff. Like they can't just, would they just, they would just not learn? I, I wouldn't be surprised if they just stood around I don't know. I can't remember if that was done or not, so I can't answer the question. I'm going to guess yes, they can learn it. Okay. I think it's more about the outcomes. Learning is a lot, a lot of what learning is about is about outcomes. Okay, so what I did, did that lead to food? Did that lead to mates? Did that lead to whatever? It's a good thing. 
So, if by standing here and looking at a test tube I got fed, well, that apparently is what works. But eventually, if you do that long enough, you then, and you cook your food, you're going to learn that that doesn't do a goddamn thing, and maybe you go up to the, 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 the stopper and do something. I, I could literally text Luca there right now and ask him. But I'm, that'd be kind of crazy because we'd be waiting for, what would we all do? Sit here and wait for him to reply? So is this producer scrounger thing seen in nature of pigeons? Or is it just That's a good question. It probably is. I mean, you probably do get. See, pigeons are opportunistic feeders, right? Like, they'll, they'll eat anything. Uh, because it seems like you could go, like, uh, if a pigeon uh, just sees another pigeon eating, it could just go to where it is and not have to do the searching itself, right? Yes, exactly. And in fact, that happens a lot with birds. They see another bird pecking, and they'll just come over and start pecking at the same place. So that's kind of a scrounger. Yes, it, it kind of is, but it's also, it's more that you're still producing because you're still, you're still actually doing behavior to get food, right? But I see what you're saying. And that certainly is a social thing. Um, when chicks are hatched, uh, you don't have to teach chicks what food is. That's something they learn pretty quickly. But you can get them to peck more quickly if you take something like a pen and put it in front of their face and just peck on the ground. They'll start pecking. They just do that. That's something people who raise chickens know. That's a thing. And you can train them. You can actually train preferences into, into chicks when they're really small. Like, few hours old, you can say you've got some say, green seeds and some red seeds, so you've dyed them, obviously. And you peck at the red ones, they'll like the red ones. They'll still eat green ones, but they'll prefer the red ones. And you just do this with a, you can use a, a pen or a, or a pin or just something with a point or just with your finger like that. They'll follow it. Yeah, I didn't believe it until I watched it happen. Right? I shouldn't say I didn't believe it. I'd never heard of it. And then Jerry Hogan, who's a guy who studied jungle fowl, Behavior a lot when I was in grad school. He was a fiber uh, ethologist at, at Toronto, and he was with these birds. He was doing this. What are you doing? He said, I'm teaching him to eat. I said, Teach them to eat? He said, You mean sort of, you know, I'm sort of an expert in this thing? I said, Okay, like, I guess you are. You never really think about that. There's a social aspect to eating. You don't, but in fact, there is, right? I and mean, there's, there's food calls. Like, you can, like, chickens make food calls. So, like, both roosters and hens make these calls when they get food. And they have different calls that are related to the quality of the food. So better quality food has a different call than lower quality food. And that brings in other chickens, including their dogs. You want to think of this evolutionarily, which you probably should. Okay. I tried to find pictures and I typing into Google things about cream and this is a bad idea. And I swear to God, I tried, man. And I couldn't find a good picture of a of a of a marsh tit opening uh like pictures of marsh tits. These they just look like chickadees anyway. It's amazing how much they look like chickens. So in the UK in the fifties, um, after the war, there was milk delivery. It was becoming much more common. Okay? Milk delivery happened well into the geez, 1970s in Canada. I remember as a kid, we had a milkman. You'd wake up in the morning and be milk on your front porch. You know, that's not that long ago. It's like 35 years ago, 40 years ago. You'd wake up and you'd get the milk. It'd be a newspaper. You'd bring dad and you'd bring the milk to mom. It was simpler time. So they bring these milk, these milk bottles, and the milk bottles had um, little uh, foil tops reusable milk bottles in the UK, okay? And there'd be cream sitting on top of the milk and separate. So you get cream sitting there, and they peck through it, the marsh tits, and they get the cream. Great. And it seemed to start in one part of England, and then it spread all over the UK. I was like, wait, I get there teaching it to each other, or one of them will learn it from another one, it passes on, etc. Pretty cool. That's a question I don't know the answer to. I think you got a, you got a hungry marsh tit and he lands on something and pecks at it. You know, he goes, hey, she's delicious, right? Because they're English, so they talk like that. They think in English. Most people know most birds think in English. It's a little known fact. Is it possible that they observed one of the foil caps 
yeah, being torn off a little bit. Yeah, that's that's possible. We don't. I mean, that's that's lost to history. I don't. No one knows why that happened. So, there, Dave Sherry and Jeff Galef go back to Galef again. Galef's a big guy in the social learning stuff. Had black cap chickadees. It's close enough. They're basically marsh tits with Canadian accents, right? So they, okay, there's cream, right? So they're they're more like freaking Horton's cream things, and. So they used little creamers, little coffee creamers. They taught one to open. That's easy to do. You can get a bird to peck a thing. It's not a hard thing to teach a bird. And then they had, so this is in a cage. You've got one bird that's given cream tubs to eat, open and eat, and the other bird is in there is supposed to watch it. But you can't, there's a divider in the cage, right? So there was a demonstrator condition. That's where, there was a condition where the demonstrator was trained to open the tub. And then finally, there was also a condition where there was just a, a tub left there. Just a cream, you just see a cream tub. So there's your idea. Maybe they would sort of learn that there's food in there somehow. So watching the other bird feed from a tub, whether it was opened or not, beforehand was enough to get them, the learner, to, to open the tub. They had to learn there was food inside. But did they learn the behavior? That's the question. That's not definitive, that, right? That's saying, knowing there's food in there, they've learned there's food in there, that's great. And they probably learned it because they saw another animal eat from the damn thing. But it looks like They were associating that with food, not so much learning a behavior. Because it was just learning a behavior, they had to watch the bird open it. And it wasn't that they had to watch the bird open it, they had to watch a bird open it or eat food from it. It's already open. So it's using a behavior that is not enough. It's, it's, it's probably just learning, look at the behavior and going, oh, that means food there. So they haven't learned the behavior, they've learned something about the, the, the thing they're directing the behavior at. Pecking at it, which is a they would already know. Yeah, pecking is how you get food. You're a bird. It's the only way you do it, right? You can't just go to the corner store. And if you do, you peck things that are there. Yeah. And I, this has been tried a few other times, and it, 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 nobody's had great success with it. Um, I know right now, looking at chickadees, well. One of Dave Sherry's grad students back in the 80s, Chris Hitchcock, looked at birds, chickadees, watching other chickadees store food. And did they learn where the seeds were? And the results weren't entirely clear. And I know right now Jeff Martin, who's also in Dave Sherry's lab now, is, is, is doing work like that at Western. Okay, here's another example. Uh, these are, no, they're like uh, blackbirds, some kind of blackbird. But blackbird is a species, not just a black bird, because a crow is a blackbird. This is a uh, Curio 1988. So what's happening here is we have, I love this supposed this stuffed owl. The drawing is wonderful, isn't it? Um, so here's an owl. And this bird sees an owl, and they, they get really pissed off. They mob them, because they're mobbers. We talked, we talked about mobbing before. This bird here isn't seeing that. It's seeing something else. In this case, it's seeing a member of its own species. It's a stuffed one, which is morbid, I would think, for the bird, but whatever. There's other conditions where it was just seeing a balloon, <laughs> all kinds of different things. Because then you think, like, how do they learn to mob things? Right? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it's a social behavior. So are they learning to mob other members of other species or whatever? How do they learn that? Well, this is a way to test it. So this will mob this because they've learned this over the years that, ooh, owl's bad. But now we're learning, and this is this condition, and this experiment was to mob a member of its own species, but you could use anything like I said. I believe there was a balloon used at one point. 
okay? and a cardboard cutout of a bird. I think eventually experimenters can even try something else. You know, so they just keep they picking things. What a baseball, you know, they just whatever. Something that was clearly not an animal. Yeah, exactly. So now what happens is this guy learns to mob this. Because he sees this behavior, but he can't see that it's not this. He thinks, you know, because he's a stupid bird. Eh? They don't live on the planet, we do. So, sees this, sees this behavior, thinks, oh, those are scary. So, has it learned, this is the cool question now, is has it learned to mob through some special mechanism? Because it's clearly learned to be afraid of that, that thing, whatever that thing is there. The thing is, if you look at this, it's actually probably just classical conditioning. So if we have mobbing calls and behavior by the teacher, unconditional response is mobbing by the uh, response by the pupil, and that's a bottle or a honey eater or a blackbird or whatever. This is another experiment. See time one, time two, so I keep, keep talking about. You can teach a monkey to be afraid of flowers using a similar tactic because the monkey just sees a other monkey being really afraid of a snake, but actually it thinks it's seeing a flower. Same sort of setup. Monkey learns to be afraid of flowers. Now, like little Albert for flowers and monkeys. Now, the black pack birds, uh, do they mob from birth? Uh, mob owls. Uh, they mob when they get old enough, when they're juvenile, by the time they're juvenile. As in, uh, if they are never presented with the behavior of mobbing owls. Yeah, I don't think anybody's done that because you'd have to raise a colony of, of, of those birds. I'd be surprised. Like, they're wild caught birds. You don't just grow bird. you don't grow blackbirds in your lab. You don't grow birds. What's that? You don't grow birds at all. You can. You can breed them. You raise them. Well, you breed them. The uh, Lori Bloomfield in our park raised uh, black capped chickadees from hatching until they were old enough to live in the lab at her in like her apartment. I'm, I'm being semantic over there. Yeah, and I'm just ignoring her. <laughs> so you can also teach a um, see what you're doing is you teach a monkey to be afraid of flowers. But it's just classical conditioning. It's basically the same thing as Little Albert, when you think about this, right? It's the Little Albert experiment, which is nasty and horrible, and John Watson was an asshole. Bad man, and he taught a poor little kid to be afraid. Probably an orphan kid, not sure if it was, but I'm going to assume it was an orphan kid, just because I think John Watson would be even meaner. It was, it was a nurse's. Yeah. And him and Rainer, Russell Rainer, taught this poor kid to be afraid of fuzzy buddies. Anything. Yeah, eventually generals, yeah. So this is the thing, it's just Pavlov, that's just Pavlovian conditioning. So it's not, this isn't that interesting. At first it looks interesting. But mobbing behavior can be simply learning through Pavlovian conditioning, through uh, CSUS basically, right? Okay. So we have some interesting phenomena so far. Right? There's no doubt about that. There's stuff that more or less looks like it might be social learning of some sort. Does being a social animal matter? Whoops. It should. I mean, it just intuitively doesn't it make sense, right? It makes sense. But it could be about the opportunities to learn. It's easier to learn from others if you are around others, right? So it might just be that we see these, because a lot of these things are things we see in the wild. We don't think of them, we take them into the lab. So if you've got chimps, they live in colonies, right? They live in a committee of chimps, literally, is what it's called. Um, which, if you've been on committee, you serve on a committee, you can realize it's the chimps. Uh, marsh chits, chickadees, they live in flocks. Right? These rats are communal. Those, those black rats. So the reason we see this phenom these phenomena, maybe, and then we test them, is because they're with the other animals, so we can see it. So generally, social species learn socially better than non-social species. It seems that way. But if you do what's called a task analysis, in other words, you break down what is the animal learned. So just like that's the CS and the US. 
right, with the last couple of examples, um, and make a non-social version of a social task. So how a non-social version of that last, of, of the sort of learning to mob, you just learn it to be afraid. So you pair fear with whatever the object is. It doesn't have to be social. And in fact, when you do this, and you go into a lab and you take two species and you compare them, very often it's, it's, it, it, it's not a matter of them of there being anything special about it being social learning. I'm not saying it isn't always. I'm saying that a lot of times, if you do it like a task analysis like we just saw, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. So it actually just might be a learning difference. Now, we, for example, if you take uh, pigeons, which are social animals, they flock, and oh, what kind of doves? I have this written down here. Zeneda doves. They are not social, they're solitary doves. And you compare them on the ability to learn things, their memory, and what is social and what isn't social. Zenady doves are not social, the regular, your standard doves are. Standard pigeons, pigeons and doves are the principles. Pigeons are actually just smarter, <laughs> so they're gonna learn better. And it's got nothing to do with, it, it's not that they're social, they just are better at learning tasks. So it's, they're just smarter. So that's annoying. Because it looks like you have something, then you realize, oh, I see those doves are stupid. They're not, it's not that they're solo, they're just dumb. Right? See, you see why this stuff's really complicated and annoying? Like you keep seeing neat phenomena and going, no. Right? Could I said, you, yeah, go ahead. Could you potentially, so if you, I mean, I don't think ethically you might have issues with this one. But the idea of taking a normally social animal mm -hmm. and secluding it, mm -hmm. and then testing mm -hmm. in comparison to a non-social. The problem there is you're interfering with the normal development of an animal, and if that's going to cause other problems, so you can't really do that. I mean, ethically, again, you just pretend screw ethics, not worry about it, which you can't do. But let's pretend that we would do that. I would still have a problem there, completely not morally or ethically. The problem is that. You've messed with the Other development of the animal itself, so you're actually you don't have the animal anymore because its behavior is as much part of it as the color of its fur, right? It's a good question, but yeah, I don't think that works. So could you just like raise them normally and then separate one later on once they're fully developed? You probably you might be able to do something like that, but again, if they're separated and they're normally animals that live communally. You can put the animal in enough distress that it's going to screw with its ability to learn things. Okay, what if you tried bringing it apart, like, for just, and nothing would happen to it? You'd do that for, like, oh, yeah, sure. 10 trials, so it would not assume that it would yeah. be itself. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, the problem with this stuff is that, like I said, you sort of need this. The only way to really do this is, is by, well, you've got to look at something like doves versus pigeons and the kind of dove that's solitary. Or you look at, just do this task analysis. It's really the only way to do it, to, to, to figure out, to say, well, what are the components here? What's the animal learning? Because all those other things, you're messing with what the animal, how the animal lives its life normally. Right? And I'm not saying lab experiments are bad. I mean, that's my, most of my life is built on lab experiments. My career, my life, I shouldn't say that. That's weird to say. But most of my career is based on doing lab experiments, right? I think I've done... I'm doing a field experiment right now, and I've done one other. That's it. But the one in the backyard? That's the backyard. Um, yeah, that's what, yes. It was in my backyard, and I just waited and looked at the data. I should say, I did. My student So the proper science is done. Students do the work, and I just sit there and look at the data. Um, I take credit. Well, your students get credit, too. But yeah, so I don't know. I mean... It's tough. When you're looking at these ecological variables, then taking them out and taking the animal sort of out of its niche completely like that is, it's a, it's tough. It's sort of like, it doesn't, I don't know, it's kind of like comparing 
comparing apples to oranges, yeah, they're the same species, but if what we're looking at is social behavior, yeah. and then you decide that yeah. you have to separate them based on whether or not they're social yeah. animals before you even begin, does it not seem like I don't really no, see, I see what you're saying. point in even doing the experiment? No, I see what you're saying. It makes it tough to even make decisions, to make conclusions, rather. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, it does. This, this work is hard. Compared to psychology, it's hard. Yeah. And the reason it's hard is because I can't randomly assign subjects to species. Right? Because that makes me, then you line up on Sundays and worship me. So if I could randomly assign birds to different to story and non-story bird species, my PhD thesis would have been much stronger. It was pretty strong and awesome, by the way. But it would have been much better if I could have said, you are now a chickadee. But I can't do that. So I have to work with what I got, which is nature's done an experiment for me. These things have evolved. Right? It's like doing sex difference work in humans. Like, it'd be great if we could randomly assign people to having to be brought up as men or women and having female or male generally biology. We can't. So what we do instead is we say, we'll test women and men on these um, two spatial tasks and two verbal tasks and see what happens. Right? So it's that kind of thing. It's the same, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's tough. So that's why you want to test a lot of species in a lot of different tasks. And if you see the same pattern all the time, you go back to what Al Campbell said, what Sarah Shuttleworth says, other people. If you see the same pattern all the time, like, let's say we had social and non-social tasks, and we had a bunch of them. We would expect, if the social animals are always better than non-social, at social learning, they should show that difference, but only there, but not in other kinds of learning. Whereas with these doves and these pigeons, it was, the doves are stupid. <laughs> it was the problem. Right? That's, what, that's one of the things that makes it hard. It also makes it fun. I mean, it's one of the things that makes this stuff really interesting, is that you end up doing this stuff and you maybe you have to do 20 experiments or five or eight instead of two or three. Yeah, it makes the work hard. It's like working with nonverbal, like, like with babies. Uh, a lot of times you'll find that people that do comparative cognition really get along well, sort of scientific, with people who do infant cognition. Because working with infants is hard because they can't talk. So you've got to design exceedingly clever experiments to figure out what's inside the mind of an infant. So yeah, I mean, no, you make a good point. So the difference now between, well, imitation is doing what I do and not worrying about what I think. In other words, doing, just follow, you know, you know what we call it in English and in many other languages? We call it aping. It's pretty clear we think apes do this, and we're apes, but other apes do this. We say things like monkey see, monkey do. Yeah, we think that monkeys and apes do this. And we're apes. So it's not about caring, taking, like looking at somebody's motivations or what, how they're thinking. It's just doing what they do. So when I watch, I don't know, what's the show on the Cookie Channel? When I watch Good Eats, because Alton Brown, there's the science in there too, and he's goofily funny. Impossible to but all the, the stuff that he does, the, I, I listen, of course, but it, also you see technique. You learn how to do that. Right? Humans clearly do this. I, I don't think there's any doubt that humans can learn through imitation. Right? We have whole games built up for children that are all about in, uh, imitation. Heck, playing that game Simon, you know, with the do 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 you know, that thing? That's, that's imitation. Just do the same thing and touch the thing in the same order. Okay. Okay, this is sort of the experiment. So Witten et al., 1996, they got chimps and toddlers, not in the same room. That would be a mistake, because the chimps would probably kill the toddlers. And you give them artificial fruit. What is artificial fruit? It's actually a box that has all kinds of little levers and knobs on it and stuff, and you put food inside it. And when you pull the levers and knobs all in the right order, the food comes out and you get to eat it. In other words, you're kind of peeling the fruit. Okay? It's no puzzle. Sort of, but the Fernex puzzle box, because the box is actually pretty exciting. So it's a little toy. And these are toddlers between the age of about two and four. And they watch an adult play with them. Okay? And then the food comes out and they eat. 
Everybody gets the food, by the way. The chips get it, and the toddlers get it. But you take a look at what they did. Kids about three and four actually do all the behaviors in the order, even the ones that don't matter, by the way. Because really, only one thing you have to do. You have to pull one thing and open it. You show the kids, this, 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 and you do that a few times. Chips and like two-year-olds just do it trial and error. Chips couldn't learn this. I think one chip in the experiment of like five chips. If you give this thing to a two-year-old, it pulls at it enough and eventually does things in the right order and the whole thing called a bunch of smarties come out. If you, even after you've shown them. Whereas the three or four-year-olds are like, okay, yeah, so that, 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 and then this. Ha ha, smarties. So that some of the chimps could learn through imitation, but not all of this behavior. So most of the chimps didn't imitate. It was trial and error, just like the, just like the two-year-olds in the experiment. So be that the behavior was too complex? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But... Once they taught a chip, once Witten in 2004 taught a chip to actually do the task. And once it was taught, the chip then demonstrated for another chip didn't help. Other chip just grabbed the thing and sort of pulled it randomly at it. Damn, that's no good. Kind of annoying, actually. You kind of wish this works. Is chips know stuff, right? They seem to, they got that look in their face like they're, they're, they're kind of looking at you like it's us and all the other species. When you look at a chip, they got that look in there, they smile. By the way, when chips smile, that's a, that's, that's a, that's fear. It's abject fear. They're not happy. That's a fear, like when they, they're showing you their teeth and they're frightened. Now, this is different. Theory of mind. I love theory of mind. Somebody just doing theory of mind for their paper project, right? Yeah. So I won't talk too much about it because I want to steal your thunder when we talk. But I'll say that you can do that. <laughs> you can take some pretty good notes now. Suddenly you're oh wait, maybe I'll take notes now. Um, so this works pretty cool. You know a theory of mind, right? This is the idea that I can look at you and you can look at me and we can guess how the other each other's thinking. Roughly. Right? So the classic example with, with kids is you can do the, uh, there's a few you can do. There's the Smarty box experiment, right? Or, or task where you just take a little box that looks like it's Smarties and you fill it full of not Smarties, maybe marbles, right? And you say to the kid, look, see that? Here, that's yours. The kid opens it and pours it out and it's not Smarties. And then no, no, you, first of all, if you're nice at the end of the experiment, give the kids some smarties. But you say to the kid, what's in here? What, when the soul was in there, the kid goes, marbles. Say, what did you think was in there when I showed it to you? Marbles. <laughs> no, you thought it was smarties. You're stupid. So they don't even know. That's stupid. But they don't, they don't have any, they don't know anything with their own cognition yet. Right? You get about three and a half, the kid goes, I thought it was smarties. Give me smarties. Where are my goddamn smarties? There's a deal. Right? It's like kids hiding. Think about that. Kids don't know how to hide. Kids hide like this. You'll never find me. They can't take. They can't take perspective. Kids can't lie before they're about three. They're horrible at it. Right? They don't even try when they're really young. Or when they do try, sorry, it's so bad. There's a great picture I have somewhere of my sister. Oh, I don't have it. My mom must have it. But it's my sister. She's about a year and a half old, and big by two. She's sitting on the floor. She's got a box of donuts in front of her, and she's covered in icing sugar. And it's cute as hell. It's really fun. Like, you know, little donuts you buy at the grocery store, not that good donuts. So she's finished these off, and the picture that my mom took it, because you'll know this later when you get older and you have kids. You take pictures when your kids do weird things, and they think it's cute. So take the picture. And I remember my mom saying, Stephanie, did you eat all the donuts? And she goes, no. <laughs> oh, okay. And you go, yeah, you're covered in icing sugar. And kids look at you like, 
God, you're a genius. How'd you figure it out? They do weird things like blame animals. Blame animals, right? Uh, you, there's there's coloring on the wall exactly at the height of where your hand is, and you say, who did that? I don't know. <laughs> Probably the dog. And then it gets to the point where they go, I don't know, it was like that when I got here. And that's when they're actually trying, they, they know how to lie. It's, a, it's not very good at it, but they know how to lie. Excuse how they lie to the road two, two and a half, maybe three. Because they don't know how. Right? They, they, they can't take perspective. Their theory of mind is, doesn't, isn't developed yet. This has been shown to a point in chips. Uh, this, is, well, this is work by people like uh, Sally Boisen, uh, whose name is Sarah Boisen, but goes by Sally. So if you're looking for papers, her name is Sarah Boisen, the same person. Uh, Mike Barron, uh, Danny Pavanelli, are probably three names that you, if you're anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff. One of the cool things that's been done is, for example, take a, a, a bucket and drill two holes in it, eye holes, okay? And you put the bucket over the person's head, okay? So the chimp sees this, chimp's watching this. Put the bucket over the person's head, but they can see out of the eye holes, and then they see how much food, if there's food put in underneath A or B, like underneath, like a, underneath a, a card. So one, they fill one food well and not the other, but they can see it. And the chimp sees they can see it. And then after that, they point to the correct one. The person. Yeah, the, the person with the bucket in their head points to the correct one. Does the chimp follow their behavior? Yes, they do. The cool thing you do now is you turn the bucket around so the holes are at the back. They still fill the thing right in front of them. The chip can see that they can't see. And they point to one or the other, and it's done. They actually know which one is there. I always wonder how that works. Is it just written on the inside of the bucket? Left, right, left, 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 right, and whatever. I will ask Mike next time I see him. Sparkle predetermined. You have to memorize the whole order. I'm sure it's predetermined. I'm saying, how does this person know which one to point at? Because they don't alternate. Because the chimp will learn they're alternating. The chimp, chimps in this kind of task learn not to pay, they don't pay attention to the person who's got their, that's a test condition, obviously. They've had the whole thing in front all the time. Then yeah, they've been turned around. What the chimp apparently has learned is he can't see what the hell he's pointing to one, but he's going to be an idiot. He's just guessing at this point. That's pretty neat. There's been a lot of work like I think that's Danny's work. Yeah. No, I, why did I write them there when I had them written right there? Actually, probably when I start up season two of my podcast, Mike Barron's going to go to the people on the podcast. Mike's fun. He also brings an entirely equipped bar to con conference prep cognition every year. It's pretty great. Go to Mike's room. He's got all kinds of stuff. I like them. <laughs> Start talking about this. Yeah. It's faster than Okay, teaching. Is do animals teach? This is a weird, weird question. So for teaching, we need an improvement of specific behavior within the presence of a teacher. stuff on your own, right, and talk about it, you say you taught it to yourself, don't you? Right? If you learn something in my presence as I'm talking about it, you say Dave taught that to me. So it's the same kind of idea. You just don't usually think of operationally defining these kind of things, yeah? And there should be some cost to the teacher in the short term. Right? Because the teacher isn't doing something to benefit him or her, it's doing something to benefit the other. So in the short term, 
This is taken away from time where I can be at the post office collecting my legal marijuana. <laughs> Long term, however, it pays the bills. So I'm here. We also have to something that has to be learned. Um, something should be learned that can only be learned. I shouldn't say later. They could, yeah, sorry, yeah, I should say, what am I saying? They could only be learned later on their own. So eventually you'll get it, but the other, first individual is actually helping you to, 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 to get some behavior. See what I'm saying? Eventually you would learn to add on your own. Maybe it was something simple like that. Because you'd eventually learn that three and two is five. Just be trial and error, you'd figure it out. But when you're taught that in grade one, grade two, to three, two is five, that's probably before you've learned it by chance. There's a lot of examples here that have two of these, but not all three, which is kind of annoying. No matter what the species, except for us, because we're magic and awesome. So something special about humans, and there really is something special about humans. I mean, we are the only animal that talks about shit like this. We 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 don't we care about what other we're thinking, what other animals are thinking. We ask questions that other animals don't ask. I don't think there's existential angst in a chimp. But why am I throwing shit at my other friends? You know, like I just don't think that happens. They don't question what it means to be a chimp. What it means to be a chimp. That's that's the thing, right? And we do. We do. We'll stop there. Uh, we'll have some presentations on Wednesday. And depending if we have enough time, we do only have two slides left in this, but we might finish this up. Who knows? Uh, I'll see you guys next time.
All of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Broadbeck's Psychology Lectures Nalgoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song... For each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the, uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.